You're listening to MND Matters, a podcast from the MND Association. Welcome to MND Matters, brought to you by the MND Association. Alongside members of the MND community, including people affected by the disease, health and social care professionals and supporters, we will be bringing stories, information and expertise direct to your ears. Subscribe to ensure you don't miss an episode. I'm Nick and I work in the research team at the MND Association. And I'm Becky and I'm an area support coordinator down in Sussex. We're delighted to have Kath and Ian Muir with us today. Kath's been living with MND since April 2014 and Ian is her husband and primary carer. They hail from Richmond in North Yorkshire and they've kindly joined us to talk about how MND has affected them emotionally. Thanks Becky. We're also joined by two of the psychologists whose work with people living with MND is funded by the MND Association. Dr. Emily Mayberry, a senior clinical psychologist who works at the Motor Neuron Disease Care Centre for the Sheffield Teaching Hospital's NHS Trust, and Dr. Sean Hocking, principal psychologist for the South Wales MND Care Network. Mental health is a massive area, and we're not even going to try to attempt to cover the whole issue or do it justice in just one episode. But we're going to focus today on managing emotions, and we're exploring how MND can impact on mental well-being, and also try and consider ways that people can cope with it. Uh, we'll look a bit further into the work that Sean and Emily do as as part of their psychology work um, to support people with MND cope emotionally. Um, but also looking at uh, some of the other things that people can do to look after themselves and also hear from Kath and Ian about their experiences and hopefully that will help other people who might be listening to this sort of recognise some of the things that we talk about in themselves and how to get help and support. So yeah, very exciting episode, isn't it? Yeah, it's a really exciting episode and an important topic. For more detail about any of the topics raised, please look at our website, talk to your local branch or one of our trained association visitors. And there's also discussion threads around mental health on our forum where you can chat with others. And of course, you can always call MD Connect for a chat or to be signposted in the right direction, including if you're interested in applying for one of our wellbeing grants. These can be used to fund some therapy sessions, for instance, or help you develop a new hobby. And before we uh, invite Emily and Sean into the conversation, uh, I just want to say um, we're really delighted to have you with us today, Kath. And I know that you use assistive, assistive technology to talk. Um, so we're really thankful that you've spent some time preparing some answers for us for the questions that we want to put to you. So thank you again. Um, so, yeah, I guess we'll just jump straight in. Um, it'd be really good if we could start with yourselves, Kathy, and, and asking you um, what was life like, what was life like for you before M&D and um, before that came into your life um, and how you spent your time and tell us more about you. Life before M&D was good, extremely hectic. I was running the tea room we owned in Richmond. I was doing all the cooking and baking, staff management, etc. and working about 60 hours a week. We also had a very busy social life and enjoyed the gym, exercise classes, eating out with friends. So, uh, as Kath just said, I mean, we, we were, I suppose, like a lot of people with a very full-on life. Uh, Kathleen in the business, I had a full-time job of my own. Um, and basically, when I wasn't at work, I was assisting out. Um, and I think it was full on, 
you just fill your life up with, with everything, you know, the two sons, they'd both grow, grown up, gone through university or college and left home, so it was very much the two of us. The hardest thing was to find a break from work and actually have some time off, because anybody that runs their own business reels, that is very difficult to organise. Um, and so we were just pretty much working together, living together and going through everything together as a team. And then, Kath, you were diagnosed with M&D in 2014. What were your main emotions at that point and then in the weeks after that? At the time of diagnosis, I had had very worrying symptoms for about a year. I had already convinced myself it was MND by googling my main three symptoms, which were bad cramps, twitching and trickling over. I wasn't shocked. In some way, it was a relief, however awful, to know what I was facing. I thought it's either sit in a corner and cry or get on with life the best we could. I felt it was better out in the open. We immediately told our employees, sons, best friends and family. I felt it difficult over the first few weeks as people were continually asking how I was and what was wrong with me. I think that was... We've often said the hardest thing was not knowing beforehand because you have no idea really as to what you're going to deal with and then all of a sudden you're hit with this diagnosis um, which there's no way around it is horrific and I think different people respond in different ways and because we had a full life and a very busy life it was possibly slightly easier to just say, well, we'll keep going as long as, or as normal as we can, which is what we decided to do. Um, but it was always there in the background and you always knew that it, it was only ever going to take an increasing part of your life. Um, as Kath said, difficulty often is the continual people asking you what is wrong and how are you? And often people saying, well, I hope you get better soon. And that is often the most upsetting thing that we have to cope with. Yeah, that awareness really and people understanding about the disease, you know, is something that we we feel strongly is something we try our best to improve all the time. Um, and you, you said it, you know, it took a year for you to be diagnosed, I guess, through, through that period of time. That is a real struggle yes. trying, trying to be directed in the right place and really understanding what is going on. And whilst all of that is happening, that roller coaster, you're actually trying to maintain your work and look after the family, etc. So extremely difficult, I'm sure. Yeah, I think because it's a process of elimination to get a diagnosis, it is a very long winded up and down process. And you're told, well, no, it isn't this. Well, that's fine. But then you refer to the next step and you've then got to cope with the next appointment and waiting for the outcome of that and it's quite a draining process to go through. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah it must be a real a real challenge even now but just constantly having to repeat yourself to or tell that story again and again. Um, so thanks so much for saying that out loud on here as well because I know that people listening to this that they will resonate with that. Anyone in the MND community will will understand that emotion for sure yeah but just to bring Sean and Emily in now at this point as well because 
as we know, MND affects everybody very differently, but also it can affect people's emotions differently as well. Um, and I think unless you work or are trained in the mental health field, it must be really difficult to understand emotional changes or the way that you're interacting with people now, having to talk about an MND diagnosis or come to terms with it. Um, so I guess um, my question to you would be, what are some of the common emotions that you see in people that are diagnosed with MND or their family when they're going through understanding the diagnosis? It's really interesting there, Kath, that you touched on a sense of relief. And actually, as Ian was saying there, it's a diagnosis of elimination where lots of things are ruled out. And for many people, um, the diagnosis can at last provide a sense of relief. Um, the unknown can be a really difficult place for us all to sit in psychologically. So that sense of all of a sudden knowing what, what's causing the symptoms that you're experiencing can provide that relief. But it also, after the relief, what we notice is that people move into um, a state of denial, which psychologically is, is a protective mechanism. Perhaps people might question whether it could be something else. Is there anything else out there that might explain the symptoms? I can see you nodding there, Kath. And then shock as well. People often find themselves in a state of shock, just sitting with, I've got motor neuron disease, and what does this actually mean for me? Um, often people describe it as not really feeling real um, and not being able to really take in the, what it means for them in their future. It's interesting, Kath, that you you mentioned talking quite quite quickly after your diagnosis with your friends and family. And some people definitely find this easier than others. Some people prefer to um, process it themselves before sharing and other people will talk much, much sooner. And that those conversations will be part of the processing journey. There's an awful lot of variation between individuals in terms of how they manage and the coping strategies that they draw on. What we know from the literature is that um, there is a high prevalence of depression, anxiety, symptoms around that point of diagnosis and then within the first year as well. Emily, I don't know whether you want to add to that. Yeah, I think I think you've you've all described, you know, the kinds of things that I would mention that I've seen and and come across people experiencing as well. And um, I guess it's really just to reiterate, you know, that it's different for each and every person. Sometimes it's different for the person receiving a diagnosis of MND and for their family members. People might be at different points at different times and that the emotions people feel don't don't just stay the same. So they change over time and they might, um, you know, they might um they might be one way one minute or one day and a different way another day or another minute so just the the variation kind of in different people and also within each individual as well so no two people are the same in the way that they might respond to a diagnosis of mnd like Kath was saying there, some people may initially respond with a sense of relief and then afterwards, perhaps there's a sense of shock or denial. Um, it sounds like, Kath, you experienced something similar to that. Uh, much of our work as psychologists is around supporting people to process the diagnosis initially. 
we we often would draw on grief models to think about how somebody adjusted to the diagnosis and often the way that they've been understood previously is that there are distinct stages that people move through for example denial shock through to bargaining anxiety anger and then eventually finding some level of acceptance um, Previously, the understanding was that people move through these stages in a linear way, but now um, we understand that it's it's very different to that, that people might ebb and flow, that there's movement within, within all of those stages. Particularly thinking about motor neuron disease, there's not just the acceptance of the diagnosis itself, but all of the changes and the loss experiences that come as part of the diagnosis. So at different points, people might find that there's a new thing to adjust to, a new thing to accept. Um, so perhaps the loss of speech or the loss of um, functional mobility. We know that there are several factors that influence that. And perhaps thinking about somebody's um, support network that they've got around them. Perhaps also thinking about people's individual situations. So somebody with a younger family, somebody who's working, might face challenges that somebody who's older or not working won't face. But perhaps if you're older, there may be other challenges in terms of access and support networks. We, we know that everybody is very individual and the support that they have is very individual and how MND affects them also will, will um, interact with all of those different factors. We know that depression and anxiety are particularly high for people with, with MND, um, particularly around the diagnosis period and within that first year, as I mentioned earlier. What's really interesting, I think, is um, often people imagine that uh, somebody's mental health goes hand in hand with their physical health. Um, so as somebody becomes more physically impaired, that they too become kind of more, um, more uh, compromised in terms of their mental health. That isn't always the case. We know that people are at their, they're worse with MND around the point of diagnosis when they're at their physically at their best. But actually, the trajectory isn't the same, that we know that people can adjust and um, live live well and, and have um, good quality of life when even physically um, that might not well be the case. So I think that's important for us to remember. And I think that helps us to connect with hope um, and meaning and, and thinking about some of the therapies that are on offer there, the difference that they can can make to people living with MND. Thanks, Sean. Kath, if we could bring it back to you at this point and ask you what your own personal response was, given, as Sean's just explained, it's very individual for each person. How do you cope with your emotions as they must have been very intense at times? We try to be honest and open with each other and at times we both get upset. For tracing and tracing awareness of the disease has helped us a lot. Also getting involved in our local MND groups. I struggled a lot with how I looked, such as having to wear splints, putting on weight. The first time I had to use a walker, go in a wheelchair, not able to talk and using NIV. I found lots of support from other people with MND, both personally and online. Talking to people in the same situation is extremely useful as they are dealing with similar problems. 
thank you and how about yourself ian how how have you felt emotionally yeah i think coped? we we kind of share the emotions between them I, I think i'm a typical bloke i don't show a great deal of emotion uh for better or worse but i think the hard thing i've found to deal with is as the mnd has developed um is kind of what i would call random emotions in calf in that she would become anxious or emotional or crying almost as i would see without reason and i would then feel guilty that i'd done something wrong that had caused the emotion but because calf was as the emotion develops she becomes more stressful it affects possibly her breathing obviously now that she can't talk with a normal voice, she couldn't explain to me what was causing the problem, and that tended to create create sort of an emotional block between the two of us. Um, and sometimes it, I literally just have to walk away for a minute or two, and then come back to it to try and create a break. Otherwise, we have this block where we aren't getting anywhere. Yeah, I can imagine it must be incredibly difficult, and so many different things going on between yourselves. Uh, I mean, one of our previous episodes, Julia, one of our volunteers said that a lot of the time there are some of these conversations on the doorstep because you, there are things that you, you know, you don't, you might not want to say or, or appear to show and, 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 and there are ways to discuss that. And it's interesting you, you say, you know, typical bloke, um, you know, this is, this is, I guess, one of the one of the reasons why we want to talk about this stuff because you know everyone needs help in different ways, and the and there should be places for you to seek that help and for everyone to have to to open that conversation. You know, it's really really important that we we can try and provide that. I mean, I don't know if um, Sean and Emily um, or Becky you want to touch on on that side of things. Well, I was just going to come in and and just recognize um so to share my personal story um my dad had mnd so for my mum um and him and for my dad as well but i think my dad tended to accept it a bit sooner but the way that we normally communicate how we feel is through our voice and body language isn't it and then with mnd you're not as able to do that as easily you need to have like things that help you do that and i think just what you said there ian about just taking some space and coming back um that was one thing that definitely helped us as a family and then just work out with my dad how he wanted us to to respond next time or learn from that and I think I think thank you so much for sharing that and being so open with us um because hopefully that again I, I'll keep I'll keep repeating it in this episode but it it helps other people realize it's it's more normal than you think and it it removes that stigma um that we often have even outside of the MND world around emotions and how we express and how we deal with them. So thank you. Thanks, Becky. That's um that's getting to the to the where we want to be really with this conversation. I also just wanted to touch on another aspect of the the emotional kind of changes that can come with MND that that you mentioned, Ian. And in addition to the the kind of um, the many emotions that that come with this diagnosis and with the the various losses you mentioned, Kath, it isn't just a single a single grief. There isn't one loss. It's it's multiple and it's repeated. And then on top of that, some people with MND also experience changes in their kind of 
control of emotions or the the emotions that come out might not quite match what people feel or they might be exaggerated and that can then be distressing both both for the person experiencing that and for the people around them the family members and it sounds like potentially for the two of you that's been an added um, an added thing to have to adjust to and, and negotiate and find a way to to manage and my impression is that one of the key things for the two of you has been to to talk about what works so if if you just walked out of the room Ian Kath might wonder you know then what she's done wrong or or what's going on whereas if this is a, a kind of strategy that you both are aware of um, and you know that it works and it's helpful then then that's something that you can use for some people they might become very very tearful or they might laugh uncontrollably and and actually if people for example just sit there asking them oh are you okay what's wrong over and over then then it's harder and harder to stop and people can end up crying and crying longer whereas for some people their preference is actually to say you know shall i actually carry on the conversation and and having those conversations about what works for for you as an individual and as a family i think is really important for managing that thank you for that emily if people do decide to seek support could you just talk us through the therapy process i mean we know for instance it starts with an assessment but for some it might sound like quite a daunting a daunting word assessment how does that work so a, an assessment really is is not the best word for it in some ways because we're not we're not assessing someone's ability or we're not we're not assessing someone as a person really what we're trying to do is understand you as a person you as a family and and trying to think about what would be helpful and and sometimes in the work that i do um actually an assessment is is therapy in a way because what we're doing is we're having a conversation about about you so a little bit like we've done today i think sean and i would probably both very often start by asking a bit about your experience of um receiving a diagnosis of mnd and in fact even the time leading up to that find out a bit about life before MND and, and what's important to you now so that we can help think about what what might help you do the things that matter alongside the MND. And so the assessment is really an assessment of, of support needs, not an assessment of an individual, if that makes sense. And then based on the discussion that we have, which is really just a conversation, um, then we would think together about what would be helpful. And sometimes that might be therapy, which might involve us working together to keep identifying what's what's important to you, to help you learn and develop new skills or new ways of, of looking at, at things or interacting with uh, thoughts and feelings. And sometimes the next step might be to say, actually, you know, maybe therapy isn't what's most helpful now. Maybe actually you want to spend your time doing those things that matter. Or, or there might be other things. It might be connecting with the MND Association or getting support in other ways. 
So it would be having that conversation and deciding together what would be most helpful. Because I was just going to jump in there and you've mentioned it very at the end about like the other things that the association can help with but um locally and I know Kath and Ian you're involved with your local support group and um there's lots of local support up and down the country and if people reach out to us we can link you in and help you with those things that you enjoy doing those parts of your identity like um Kath and Ian you said about you guys doing everything as a team and socializing with your friends and hopefully you still get to do that and it's just looks a bit different and we can help people do that elsewhere as well it might look a bit different now but we've got that support mechanism in place to remove any barriers um because we always talk about like the social model of disability and it's not what your body can't do anymore it's the environment around you might make it harder but if we can remove those barriers and help you keep hold of your identity then that's going to help boost well-being and um help with those feelings of anxiety and um yeah yeah but thanks for explaining the complicated uh systems to us because i think a lot of people don't understand the psychological assessment and that sort of thing so hopefully it helps people feel less less scared of what that actually means it's not an assessment of you it's more just an understanding and i think it's a lovely way of describing it one of the therapies that we're funding at the at the mnd association um as a research trial uh which i know um sean and emily you're both involved in is acceptance and commitment therapy uh, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what that therapy is, how it works, and use that lovely, simpler way of explaining things like you just did there so we can all understand. Um, it sounds really interesting. So um, acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT as we call it, it's a bit of a mouthful otherwise, is in, in my view, the way that I think about it and the way that I tend to explain it to people is that the focus is on trying to find out what's most important to you and really clarifying that. So, for example, someone might say that um, going out for meals with friends, I think you mentioned that that's something that you, you two used to and perhaps still do enjoy doing. But but sometimes it's it's doing activities that are, are much more difficult to do now. So someone might say it's it's cycling. That's my passion. That's what I've always spent my my free time doing. And we might not be able to help the person cycle again. But what we might be able to do is think with them about what they enjoyed about that activity. What was important to them? Was it about getting together with their friends and doing that together? Was it about being outdoors? Was it about looking after themselves? And if we can understand what's really important to the person, then we can find perhaps slightly different ways of engaging with those values. It doesn't take away the, the loss of that particular activity, but it can, it can help people improve quality of life. And another thing that can happen is people can become very anxious about doing activities that they enjoy or that are important to them because of MND. So it might be using the example of going for a meal. Sometimes people feel very self-conscious about eating and the way they look when they're eating or needing help to eat. And that can sometimes quite understandably mean people don't do the things they enjoy anymore. And so ACT is also about helping people learn skills 
to interact differently with thoughts and feelings so that they still feel more able to do those things that matter and that they enjoy in spite of the difficult emotions that can come with it. Okay, uh, we are drawing to a close ever so slightly now, but I know, Ian, you've got a question, haven't you, that you wanted to pose to to Emily and and Sean. So, um, handing the mic to you. Yes, I, I was wondering what your thoughts were on this from a carer's point of view. Um, would it be useful for carers to have some sort of similar um, therapy or assessment? Although I, I'm not a big fan of the word therapy, uh, again, being a, a typical Yorkshire bloke. Um, and I often think that the only people who really understand what we are going through is the people who are stood in the same pair of shoes as I am, caring for somebody with a terminal disease. And, you know, what what would therapy bring to the table to, the, to a carer like me? We know that it's a real challenge to be a partner of somebody living with MND. You yourself are going through your own experiences of loss, of change, loss of the expected future, processing what's happening, plus also perhaps stepping into a different role. All of a sudden now you get referred to as maybe a carer, Um, and and actually you're a partner or you're a husband and that might be quite jarring. We know that it's a very individual and psychologically challenging experience. When it comes to what therapy would offer, I think again it's very individual. I know for some of the, the family members that I've met with, it's the space, it's the space to be able to be really honest, to process those difficult emotions, Often in a family, people can be very concerned about how everybody else is doing. So there are times where particularly family members might not always be open about what they're going through because they're worried about the impact of that, perhaps on the children, perhaps on their partner, um, not wanting to burden them. And so sometimes that therapeutic space becomes really a really important um, place, really, for people to open up, to be honest and to process that emotion, process what they're going through. Emily's just referred to ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, and I would say I would use that as much with family members as I do with with the patients themselves. So what's important, what matters, how do you want to live, how do you want to be? Um, Just today, talking to family members about things like self-care, who do they want to be in this? What keeps them going? What keeps them themselves in the midst of living with MND, living alongside MND? Um, so I would say it has an awful lot to offer. I think you're right, Ian. Sometimes that idea of therapy can be quite jarring for people. Um, many of the people that I work with have never stepped foot into a psychologist's room before, never have been involved in any mental health services. It's entirely new. Their only experience perhaps is watching some American drama and, and perhaps lying on a couch or something like that. You know, it's very different to to what it's like in reality getting rid of some of those stereotypes really and just thinking about this being an opportunity to talk to someone to be open with somebody um, and then to think about how you want to live your life so some people will say to me oh you know mindfulness that's not for me but actually it might be something else like Emily was saying connecting you with something that makes your life worthwhile that makes you um, 
yeah, be connected to, to the things that you enjoy. That might be the focus of the sessions. But it may well be that sometimes just having that opportunity to talk to somebody, you do touch on things. Much of the work that I do with families is about what needs to be talked about, what needs to be said. Is there anything um, that you guys need to talk together about? And perhaps we might use the session to all get together and, and go through some. That can be difficult to talk about on your own. So that would be my answer. I, I don't know, Emily, whether you, you've got other things that you think would be worthwhile no I think you know you've you've said it very well though Sean um I guess the one thing that I would come back to Ian was your mention of you know people who haven't experienced this not not knowing what it's like and and I completely agree and I, I wouldn't ever pretend to know what it's like to to have a spouse to have a family member with MND to live with MND myself um, but saying that, I sort of think of it, there are different ways that people might be able to help and there might be different kinds of help you need at different times or different people might prefer different types of help. So it, this isn't the best kind of metaphor in some ways, but I guess it's it's a helpful one for me for thinking about what therapy looks like, which is that, that if someone feels you know, very low, very down, a bit like they've fallen in a hole and they can't get out. Then there are different ways that someone might help. One would be someone might jump down in the hole and, and be there with them and see it from the same perspective um, and, and make the person feel less alone. And you might be able to work together and problem solve and better find your way out together. And that's that's OK. And that's a you know, that's a valid way of helping someone or of being helped. And that might be the most helpful thing. But there are also other ways. One would be someone sort of standing above the hole and saying, OK, um, you know, grab here, grab there, do this, do that. And again, that might be helpful and it might help someone climb out. But actually, the person down in the hole might still feel quite alone and stuck. And therapy to me is trying to do something in the middle. So it's quite helpful, I think, if we can use our knowledge and skills and maintain a different perspective. But if we also try to connect with where you are. So it would be a bit like me kind of lying down on the ground and trying to stick my head and my arms as far down in this hole so that we could speak and we could see one another but you could still have your perspective and there would be things you could see and understand that I wouldn't. And there would be things perhaps that I could see and understand that you wouldn't. And so together we could, we could problem solve and find a way forward that combines both of our knowledge and understanding. So it's not to minimize the, the benefits of speaking with other people who are, who are maybe in a similar situation, but I think what, what psychology or therapy or other kinds of support, whatever we want to call it, can be that slightly different perspective and that kind of teamwork that can that can either help you find a way out or perhaps see where you are a bit differently. And sometimes it's about finding ways to to appreciate, you know, what it looks like from from where you are now, because we can't necessarily change the situation as well. Thank you so much, Sean and Emily, for that insight. Really, really interesting, powerful stuff. Um, Kath, to bring this episode to a close, 
Is there any message you'd like to give to listeners who are either living with M&D or caring for someone and struggling with their emotion at times? Try to forget about the things you can't do anymore and focus on the things you can still do. Don't suffer on your own. There is support out there from the MND, both locally and nationally. Just talk to someone. There are grants available from the MND for quality of life and well-being issues. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, I think it's absolutely perfect place to bring the podcast to a close. So um, thanks again, Kath and Ian, for being so open and honest so that other people can, you know, reach out and know that it's it's okay to not be okay or to understand and feel like the similar situation to yours, but obviously very individual. And thank you so much, Emily and Sean, for taking the time to come and join us today and um, educate us. It's been really, really interesting um so thank you thank you all and again if you'd like to find out more contact your local branch or association visitor if you're in touch with one take a look at the mental health section on our website or connect with others in the mnd community through our online forum or call our mnd connect helpline you've been listening to mnd matters a podcast from the mnd association find more information at mndassociation.org And if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, contact our helpline MND Connect on 0808-802-6262 or email mndconnect at mndassociation.org.